baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm okay, sir. Welcome to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists, and I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. Later, we've got a lovely long conversation with shuttle pilot, filmmaker and author Terry Wirtz about flying the shuttle, commanding the space station, photographing the planet and UFOs. Think about it. If you were an alien and you flew across the galaxy, why would you go to Roswell, New Mexico? Not, not that there's anything wrong with Roswell. It's a, it's a wonderful town. I've been there. I used to fly there all the time. They have a approach to their airport that's called the Widowmaker because it's this really difficult to fly thing. So Air Force stu- pilot students have to do this. But seriously, I would go to the Bahamas or I'd go to like <laughs> southern Italy or southern France or something. More from Terry later. But we're delighted to welcome back to the podcast space reporter, TV presenter, author and all round fun person Sarah Crudus for her extremely topical expertise on commercial space flight and tourism, which, funnily enough, Sarah, everyone seems to have an opinion about now. Yeah, that is very true. And thank you so much for having me. I think um, we know, and I'm sure your listeners know, Sue, your uh, relationship with Wally Funk. You're, you've been a champion for this woman. And I, I just remember calling you the moment I found out. And I think it made my day. So it's so exciting to be on your podcast talking about commercial space, but also the fact that Wally Funk has finally made it to space, her dream was achieved thanks to a billionaire who made his money on something called the internet, which none of those things were heard of back in the 60s when when she was trying to be an astronaut. Oh, I know. And and yeah, you just mentioning that call, uh, it's brought all those emotions back. I think I may have um, shattered glass, I think, with my squeals. (laughs) (laughs) I cried after I got off the phone with you. I was so excited. Were you surprised, Sarah, before we get into more detail, because of the backlash about this flight? I I think no, because uh, although I work in the commercial space sector, I'm not naive. And I I think we've had a difficult year, difficult 18 months. For many reasons, I think trust in science is down when it should be up. But I also think space is one of these very big things. So whereas the art world or um, the fashion industry doesn't seem to get criticised, space does. So when people see billionaires doing something very obvious and, and it garners a lot of attention and there is a lot of injustice in the world. I, I understand why people feel like they do. I do think that injustice is misplaced solely on space. And we do need to to look both ways. We need to look after Earth and we need to look forward. You know, as Michael Collins said when he's on his way to the moon back in 1969 with Apollo 11, they looked back at the Earth and they looked forward at the moon with the future. They looked both ways. And that's what we need to do in terms of space exploration, people are allowed to have opinions about this, but as, as science broadcasters, it's our job to try and communicate the whole story and explain why this matters, but also empathise as to why not everyone might agree with the fact there's billionaires going to space. You're right, because I had to do a, a lot of interviews that week about Wally, obvi- obviously. I mean, most people, to be fair, were really thrilled for Wally. In a way, it felt like it was Wally's flight <laughs> as opposed to Jeff Bezos' yes. uh, flight. But the, the the question that was always put to me was about the environmental impact. Um, that was that seemed to be the angle that everyone w- was taking is sort of, you know, but it's harming the planet, but it's this. And I kept having to say it's not either or. You know, you can do both. (laughs) You can still try and, you know, be 
more environmentally conscious and friendly and design technologies that will reduce your impact. It, it doesn't have to be one or the other. In terms of the environmental impact, if you look at a Blue Origin, for example, it's not that bad. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I, I think there's a statistic. It's along the lines of the all the rocket launches in an entire year equate one hour of plane flights in, in a year. So um, it, it's it's not a huge impact on the environment. We've you know we've got to change things. We've got to be aware. But we we know a lot about our Earth. We're able to make decisions about our Earth's changing climate, about the impacts of man-made climate change because of being in space because of looking back. So it is that fine line. You don't want it just to be joyrides to the billionaires. And, and I can understand people's fear, but there's, there's a lot of good. There's a lot. You've sometimes got to have a lot of vision in terms of we're doing something for the longer term benefit. Jeff Bezos's goal is to actually take the heavy lifting away from Earth, take that environmental impact away from Earth, conduct it in space, so to speak. There's also organisations such as Space for Humanity, um, which I sit on the board of directors for. You know, Richard Branson's OMAZE competition to, to send an ordinary person to space, that's raising funds for Space for Humanity. Jeff Bezos do, donated a, a million dollars to us. Space for Humanity is trying to democratise access to space. But, you know, if we're to succeed in exploring space, it can't just be for billionaires. It can't just be for a niche for you. So Space for Humanity wants to fund trips to space, these trips to space for people from all kinds of backgrounds, because that's the only way we're going to succeed in this new commercial space area. Yes, we need the billionaires to put their money in and do the heavy lifting, but space needs to be for everyone. Well, we had both um, Virgin Galactics and Blue Origins flights last month. Let's just hear a bit of that Blue Origin flight with Wally Funk. Five, four, command engine start. Two, one. Blue Origins New Shepard rocket blasting off on its way to space with four passengers on board. But uh, as I said, uh, I think I only cared about one of them, <laughs> quite frankly. Did you enjoy it, Sarah, as much as we did? Yeah, you know, I loved it. The um, the Virgin Galactic one, which was on July 11th, I found that really quite emotional. Um, I, I know quite a few people who work at Virgin Galactic. I loved Richard Branson's speech. Seeing, you know, it was a diverse crew. It was, it's a half British crew as well. You know, you had Colin Bennett, who was um, one of the chief engineers with Virgin Galactic. And then you also had Dave Mackay, who's their lead test pilot. And then, of course, Richard Branson. So three of the crew were British. I, it was hugely exciting. And then Wally Funk's fight. I know Jeff Bezos, <laughs> it was his space company and, you know, all that. But it, it really was Wally Funk's flight. And, and that was that was incredible as well. And actually, um, I, I took the day off. I didn't do anything. I didn't really post. Or, I, I think I did post on social media, but I didn't do any interviews. Um, I enjoyed some of your interviews, Sue. But I just watched that launch and, and watched it online and, and felt really inspired by it. It was interesting, the coverage of them as well, because Wally's flight, you, you didn't have the the in cockpit video so to speak so you didn't see them during the flight you just heard their voices uh, uh, that was a very <laughs> you can always unique... hear Wally's voice <laughs> yeah that's true that's true and I just thought you know because the last year has been difficult and then you see how old is Wally 82 82 yeah. years old just leading the way up the gantry leading the way up the stairs into this spacecraft no fear going to space and I, I challenge you not to be inspired by anything that might scare you when you see someone that courageous helping you know to just open up this new frontier and it really felt like redemption because um Wally Funk now the oldest person in the space 
That record previously held by John Glenn, who went when he was 77. John Glenn, of course, testified against the what are now known as the Mercury 13 back in the 1960s. So it kind of felt like a a little bit of redemption for Wally Funk in in that sense as well. But yeah, hugely exciting. Um, So I feel like I don't need to ask you if you enjoyed them. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) Richard, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I I mean... it was very quick, wasn't it? I yeah. mean, you know, it harks, harkens back, and hence the name of the uh, of the spacecraft, to the very early days that the first Americans in space with these these suborbital flights. I mean, I, my feeling, having having lived in a house with Wally Funk for a week or so, I, I'm not sure Jeff Bozos entirely realised what he was letting himself in for um, when he signed Wally up. But yeah, it, it's absolutely fantastic to see her fly in space. I wonder, with the cynic in me wonders, how much market is there for space tourists? I've just seen that Virgin Galactic have hiked the price, for example, for their tickets. And yes, they've got hundreds signed up. But once they're flown, are there going to be more? Well, um, a friend of mine actually has done specific research into this because there are, are people working on this. And it's all to do with the, you know, you look at the percentage of super high net worth individuals and then the percentage of high net worth individuals. And there's actually quite a lot who've got the the capital to be able to afford this and then you take a fraction of the people who'd like to fly and then a a fraction of that who would like to be return customers because a lot of people are going to want to do a suborbital flight then they might want to fly all vehicles and they might want to go and and do an orbital flight so there is a market there it depends obviously it depends on you know we have to be very cold about this in a way it depends on um safety they're safe so far but you know space is still risky business so you've got to take that into account as well but there there is a market for there and then you've got organizations who'll be paying for tickets for other people to go up to space so there is that market there it's an interesting thing it might change if we get point-to-point space travel but um it's it's exciting that we're going to be minting more astronauts but i I, at the same time I, i understand people's frustration and i think we have to be mindful of that and i think future astronauts future commercial um I don't even know how to describe them. The commercial space flight participants have to be mindful of, I guess, giving back and 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 the change that going to space and experiencing from you know experiencing that view from space brings back. And I hope you don't mind me asking, Richard. Can you just slightly off topic explain living with Wally Funk? <laughs> no, we have talked about this previously in the, previously in the podcast. So um, she came here, I guess, a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, she's, she stayed. Sue's she stayed with us. Yeah, during the book tour, and it, also when we went to. European Space Agency and we were making a program as well so she stayed here several times she's just very inquisitive and Richard got the um I just basically you disappeared. Thought, I disappeared are there any questions I just needed I needed time out <laughs> so I just I just left Richard to explain every aspect of our house to her because she wanted to know how everything worked and when I say everything I mean everything I almost had wow. to take the back door apart to explain the locking <laughs> mechanism. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, though, about let's get away from the suborbital to the orbital to SpaceX. Yeah. I mean, who are way ahead yeah. of the game in, in all aspects of this and flying a commercial, a fully commercial crew for the first time. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the Inspiration4 mission is, um, it's. I don't think it's garnered enough media attention in the UK yet. You're I think right. In the US, yeah. yeah but I, I think it almost sounds so ridiculous that sometimes the media and people don't actually believe this is happening. Um, but yeah, on, um, I'm actually friends with CM Proctor, who's going to be the pilot on that mission. She will be, um, I believe, the first african-american female spacecraft pilot which is a huge accolade she you know she tried to be an astronaut in 2009 she made it to the finals with nasa she's got a phd she's a hugely capable woman she is isn't she and she's got a she's a geoscientist she does tons of stem work um yeah i'm very impressed with her background she's one of these four civilians they're going to calling it the first civilian mission to space because it will be in orbit for several days won't it yeah, I think it's three or four days they're going to be. Um, CN got to her 50s and thought she'd never be able to go to space. She's missed her chance with NASA. And now you realise you don't need to count yourself out. You never know what's in store. And you've got Haley, who is a cancer survivor. She had bone cancer as a child. She works as a physician's assistant at um, St. Jude's Hospital. And it's raising funds for that hospital as well, isn't it? For children's uh, research hospital. Yeah, I think they're hoping to raise 200 million i believe i wow. correct me if i'm wrong um so it's it's an interesting way of raising funds you know as i suppose some could argue why don't you just give the money direct um <laughs> but this is this is this is huge then you've got the ticket winner chris and then you've got jared isaacsman who's this 37 year old billionaire who purchased the flight and gave away the tickets and i i feel like it's hugely exciting it's um something which i think will attract the attention when it happens but right now People don't seem to believe it's happening outside of the industry. People maybe aren't aware of it. I understand there's a TV show coming out about it now. And I, oh, I think yes, on ne- I saw that on Netflix. Um, to, to be fair, that's where I saw most of the publicity was via the oh, promotion for Netflix. So I think Netflix must promote itself on all my social media. <laughs> uh, you, you, do, yeah. you do raise an interesting point, uh, Sarah, before and with this mission is this idea of what makes an astronaut. Because, I mean, the crew of this spacecraft, they're going to be in orbit. They are performing experiments. They are, uh, I would say, they're all astronauts. I'm not sure that Jeff Bezos is an astronaut, well, but someone who's been into space. So the FAA it's also yeah. quibbled. Um, it's funny, when you use the word new, minted for the astronauts, I like that word, these newly minted astronauts, because the FAA effectively said, no, they're not. Shortly after the launch, actually, which which I felt was a little bit churlish, but apparently it could be waved for Wally. But I, I just thought, oh, why why say that? How do you feel about it? I, I think you've got some people on the internet who are very pedantic and like to debate <laughs> it and are never likely to go to space themselves, if I'm being honest. I, I, I think that um, if you're brave enough to get on one of these rockets right now, when it is still an experimental phase, when it is still a new frontier... The new vag- I don't care whether you've paid for that seat or not. I, I don't care how other people feel. We're opening up a new frontier. If you consider yourself an astronaut, you know, if other astronauts consider yourself an astronaut, I think we need to get away from titles and, and just accept that more and more people are leaving the Earth. More and more people, yes, some are paying for it, but they're, you know, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, they created these rocket companies. They're, they're opening up this new era. Yes, I understand they, they can be divisive figures, but we've got to accept that this is an exciting time. Um, I consider them astronauts. 
purely for the fact they've been to space. I, I, I welcome debate, but I don't think we should get so hung up on titles. I think we should be excited that more people are going to space because that means many more of us can get that opportunity to see Earth from space. And then maybe in 10 years' time, we won't even care about the title and they'll just be professional astronauts who are test pilots, so to speak, and, and the rest are, are, are just tourists. But right now, we should just be excited that more people are able to experience space because eventually it means a lot more people will get that experience. Well, let's share that experience by hearing more from the Blue Origin flight, beginning with a weightless Wally Funk during her three to four minutes in microgravity. Oh, I love it. I love it. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Yeah, this is different, isn't it? A little different. I cannot. Oh, wow. Can I take a moment? I felt so charged. I was not nervous. I was, I was just normal, normal person going up into space, and that's what I wanted to feel. Nothing here. I can confirm that I was never nervous. <laughs> <laughs> she, was, she was wondering what was taking so long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. We had a six-minute hold on the pad, and while I was like, are we going to go or not? <laughs> what the hell? We're burning daylight. Let's go. <laughs> I've been waiting a long time to finally get it up there. I loved it. And I loved being here with all of you, the four, the four of us. It, we had a great time. It was, it was wonderful. I want to go again fast. <laughs> Sarah, we, we've talked about, you know, the, the benefits to very rich people. We've talked about, you know, some of the amazing people going on the SpaceX flight. But what about the the wider benefits? I mean, the big picture here, how does this feed into human exploration? So moon, Mars, you know, colonization of space, the the whole big thing, or is this just a, a dead end? This is an extension of life on Earth. You know, humans are built to explore. Humans are built to go over the hill. It'd be like saying, is sailing to the Americas just a dead end? Should we just stay where we are? I mean, it's, you know, for better or worse, humans have explored the Earth and, and now space is that next natural step. And it's actually about extending humanity's presence beyond Earth into space. The goal is to become a multi-planetary species. This stuff all sounds like science fiction, but we're all kind of like, got these front row seats were witnesses to to science fiction almost turning into reality right now so having more humans go to space it means that we can now you know this is a commercial space industry we can now fund more technology which will drive forward orbital flights for for space tourism and then different types of missions and it leaves nasa and the space agencies to look at exploring further into space where these commercial partners can kind of do the things we've done before such as go and resupply the international space station and and such so it's a huge step it's about making space no longer just about a niche group of people and it means that if we can reduce the cost of launch say by 10x one day even by 100x then we can get more people and more importantly more payloads and more ideas into space in the same way that the internet in the 1990s meant that any kid in the dorm room could effectively come up with a billion dollar company look at um facebook or, or jeff bezos with amazon for example all these companies which dominate the world today no one had heard of 20 30 years ago back when the internet first came around and the same will happen with this commercial space era as more people are able to access their ideas in space, many of these ideas will be used to benefit Earth as well. We will create companies over the next few decades that we haven't even imagined yet. So it's about expanding our presence into Earth, but it's about 
improving life on Earth, expanding technology to improve all, all of life on Earth. It's a, it's a hugely exciting time and we cannot begin to imagine what is to come next with it. Yeah, that's very true. I, I noticed that on the Space for Humanity website, and you mentioned earlier that you're on the board for that. This is this non-profit, uh, not-for-profit organization that you intend to fly people with Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic and Space Perspective. And so I had a look because I thought, oh, Space Perspective, you know, I, I, I hadn't come across that before and loved the look of that one because it's a capsule carried by a, a sort of massive weather balloon, effectively, that goes into to space. And it was half the price of the others because the tickets were okay still out of the reach of most people $125,000 but they're sold out those tickets are sold out until 2025 which for a six-hour experience and I thought okay that's I say it's not cheap but already I I think oh if the price of that comes down that's the sort of thing that I would definitely sell the house for rich sorry (laughs) (laughs) Are you breaking it gently to yeah. make the house in my normal subtle way? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could fly together, surely. You no, I, I don't want to hear a man scream, a grown man scream. It, that was bad enough on the centrifuge. I love quite a balloon. Frankly. I love a balloon. <laughs> I have done. Yeah, we have done a hot air balloon. I mean, because coming on to the balloon, I mean, there have been. A, I, this is not a new idea. There've been other no, companies that have all. talked about this, like Worldview. I mean, I, and that's I've why I didn't recognise feature- space perspective. I've written heard of features on this for um, for the for BBC Future, and you know, and so I mean, is this going to happen? This this one, and is is this a more I guess, feasible option. Well, some of the team behind Worldview are now involved with Space Perspective, um, Jane Pointer, for example, and it's the technology's there. Balloons, um, in many ways, the our first step into space travel, they're certainly our origin of spacesuits when we were doing high-altitude balloons back in the, the first half of the 20th century. So, yes, the technology's there. Again, this is something which is developing, and it's just like with Virgin Galactic. Everyone was like, when's it going to happen? He says it's going to happen next year, and now it's happened. So it's the same thing with all these balloon companies. The technology's there. It's being developed. It needs to be safe. No, you don't technically go into space, but you get that experience of being at the edge of space, seeing the curvature of Earth, which is what most people want from actually going to space. They want mm. that view from Earth. You want darkness and that blue blue line below Yeah, and I, I think it's a view that we can talk about, we can see in pictures. But um, as Michael Collins said, um, again, Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins, he, he wrote the forward for my most recent book, Look Up, and he talked about how... Um, Nicely done, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, you haven't heard Terry Verts yet uh, when he he comes up. We can can count the product placement in that. It's extraordinary. What else could I I, um, list here? Sue, should I mention your book as well? What if your face to space? (laughs) Um, Deal. But, you know, he talks about how in in images, the the earth doesn't sparkle like a gem when you you see it with your own eyes. and, And you look at all the... The astronauts, so you know, who've been to space and how it profoundly changed them, and mostly to do good things, to come back and to care about their Earth and, and to care about their community. So, the hope is that with these many new space ventures, that um, space tourism will enable more people to take in that view and, and to to come back a changed person, as well as doing all the really good stuff like more science experiments and getting more science to space at a lower cost. So, um, yes, we we need to be excited about all of these companies, and I think with with any new era, there's a lot of commercial space companies around we only ever hear about the the main players so to speak like spacex um virgin galactic blue origin but there's, there's many many companies and they're all trying to do different things and i think it's fair to say 
most of them will fail. Lots of fortunes will be lost, but some of these will become game-changing companies, which will disrupt the industry, as I said, in ways we can't imagine. So it's an exciting industry. It's full of risk, but it's full of a lot of smart people who have the ultimate goal of opening up space for many, many more humans. Well, thanks, Sarah, for now. Do stay with us. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And you can also email us at podcast at spaceboffins.com. Next, our new favourite astronaut, Terry Wirtz. He's piloted the Space Shuttle and in 2015 commanded the International Space Station, missions that included three spacewalks. He holds the record for the most photos taken in space, 300,000, and since retiring from NASA has circled the globe, pole to pole on an aircraft, directed films, written a book, and now presents a podcast. Well, in a wide-ranging conversation, we talked to him about leadership, perspectives of Earth, advice to space tourists, and UFOs. We began by asking Terry which flight he preferred, his first on the shuttle or his second in the Soyuz. I love flying in both spaceships, but honestly, as a pilot, as a space shuttle pilot, I I love that because I actually flew Endeavour. When we were in space, I grabbed the control stick and maneuvered it. And when I undocked from the space station, I flew it around with the control stick. And when we were back on Earth, I grabbed the stick and and turned left, right, up and down, you know, with flew it like an airplane. So just as a test pilot and fighter pilot myself, that was really the ultimate experience was getting to fly the shuttle. It was fun in the Soyuz, but it was very different. It's all automated. You're just kind of riding there as a passenger, but the shuttle, you had to fly it. What's the difference between piloting a plane and piloting the shuttle? Is it purely response time? That's a really interesting question. So the shuttle had what we call control harmony issues. It was very sluggish in roll. You'd put in a left roll input and it would take a long time for it to start rolling. But in pitch, it was really quick. But because it was a Delta wing, kind of like a Mirage 2000 or Mirage 3 airplane, when you pulled back on the stick to climb, the first thing it would do was to lose lift and drop. And then it would start to climb after that. So that's not a big deal when you're up at altitude, but when you're in the flare and you're just about to land on a runway, if you wanted to pull up and kind of climb or stop your descent, when you pull back on the stick, the shuttle, the first reaction it had was the drop. And so that was... It's a little bit worrying. <laughs> you had to think ahead of the jet. You had to stay ahead of the shuttle. Otherwise, you could end up in kind of an ugly situation. <laughs> uh, and what about maneuverability in orbit, because that, that's that's very different. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing about the space shuttle, and there's been nothing like it since, that you can control it in space and you can control it within the atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. And flying in space is different. In fact, I have a, <laughs> I have a new book out called How to Astronaut, and it's just a collection of short essays about space travel. And one of them is about that, because maneuvering in space is very different. For example, if you want to climb when you're in orbit, what you really have to do is speed up and then that higher speed will cause you to climb. If you want to go left, you can go left, but 22 and a half minutes later, you're going to be coming back to the right just because of the way orbital mechanics work. It's a really interesting thing. It's not intuitive. And as a pilot, I kind of had to take some time to just relearn how to fly. So you can't just sort of point at something and, and aim for it. It's it's a very different experience. Well, you can. If you go really fast, you can do that. The problem with the space shuttle is 
is a 250,000 pound vehicle. So if once you get it moving, you have to stop it. And that requires a lot of propellant. So going fast generally burns more propellant, which is really precious. And you don't want to do that. Plus, like I said, you don't want to have a 250,000 pound thing bump into you, um, <laughs> which would be bad. So in general, we flew the shuttle uh, at pretty slow speeds, although uh, the Soyuz actually flies pretty fast. I, when we did the rendezvous in the Soyuz, I remember thinking, wow, man, we are flying. In the shuttle, it was kind of like watching paint dry. But in the in the Soyuz, it was very fast. Excellent. Now, your first mission delivered the European cupola to the space station. And considering the number of photographs you've taken, it, it, it makes me wonder whether you've, you're the astronaut who spent the most time in the window. <laughs> you know, I don't know how, if I, I don't was, blame you. It's I not tried, a criticism. <laughs> no, no, no. I tried to spend as much time as I could. I mean, that was, that was why I was there. After I left NASA, I was a consultant for this filming project and we had the crew up in space to film a bunch of shots of the earth. And we scheduled them time. They had, you know, dedicated, it was like 60 hours of time to go set up a camera and, and film different things. And I was so jealous. I would have killed for that. I never had any time scheduled ever for that. I, I, I shot an IMAX movie. I, I helped film A Beautiful Planet, which is this amazing IMAX film directed by Tony Myers. I had one hour of like camera equipment training scheduled. That was the only thing I had scheduled. So I would have Man, having uh, having sixty hours to go take pictures would have been awesome. Uh, according to Wikipedia, though, you've taken the most pictures of Earth when you're uh, an astronaut. Is that is that right? Is that still right? Well, that's what they told me. Um, <laughs> and I, w when I landed, there was some poor guy here at the Johnson Space Center that whose job it was to track that. <laughs> it was over three hundred and nineteen thousand. I forgot the exact number, but part of it was because of the IMAX movie. I took a lot of still images for that because we would set the camera up to two or four frames a second. And then you would get a sequence of a couple hundred images and the iMac software would turn it into this super high quality video. That was probably a hundred, a hundred of the 300,000 were, was for iMac. But yeah, I, I just like to take pictures and I shot a lot for sure. Well, we've had astronaut Nicole Stott on the podcast quite a few times, and she said she often, ha you know, had to set a timer to to ensure that <laughs> she left the window. But a lot of time on the space station is actually spent in in the sort of place where there are no windows at all. It, it, does that make it really hard to stay motivated when you're doing the sort of scientific experiment part of your mission? Yeah, most of the station doesn't have windows and the, all the hatches between modules have windows, but they're also all covered with equipment. So most of those windows are blocked. And so the most of your day, like you said, is just working in a kind of like in an office. Imagine having an office without a window <laughs> is like what it is like what it's like. But then the, then you can go down to the cupola, which is this big seven windowed module like you were talking about and that's that's definitely the motivation. For me, the key was having different things to do. And so I never got bored because it was always diff different stuff to do. You were commander for Expedition 43. I've often wondered about this with, with commanders, what, what that role involves, how much leadership you need, or is it a question of you've got a, a team there who pretty much get on with stuff and you're there in an emergency or, or is it more hands-on? I think a lot of leadership comes down to 
knowing who you're leading, right? If you're an army sergeant and you have a platoon of 18 year olds, you you have to tell them everything to do and you never give them judgment about anything ever, right? You tell them to put their left boot on first and then their right boot, right? But when you're the space station commander, you have a team of astronauts who are pretty motivated. They're pretty well-trained. I had Gennady Padalka on my crew who has spent the most time in space of any human. So it was a very different situation. So my leadership style was very collaborative and we had, we would have problems, you know, like this thing isn't working or this thing broke, or we're having a problem here. And we would come together and I'd say, Hey guys, here we're having this problem with the water recycling system. And somebody would come up with a good idea and I'd say, all right, that's what we're doing. And so it was much more collaborative, but then you've got each astronaut has their own agency, right? Like we had NASA, the Russians had Roscosmos, Samantha, the European astronaut had the European space agency. So in a lot of ways they're in charge too. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen. And so if you're like a type a, you're the boss, you have to have everything your way. Um, I think you're going to struggle as a space station commander. Aren't all pilots type A? I thought (laughs) you you have, uh, yeah, there's different personality. I mean, some guys, I know the guys that just wanted to be in charge of everything and have everything exactly the way they want it they really struggled because <laughs> it's a giant bureaucracy with lots of people who are bosses. And so you you have to have some flexibility. Um, otherwise you're going to be miserable and you're going to make everyone around you <laughs> miserable when you're commander. You mentioned Samantha there, as in Samantha Christopheretti. Um, right. We're, we're big, big, big pals. We say on the podcast of, of, of Samantha, we, we love her. Obviously she's got her first mission next year as commander of the space station and right. uh, she's coming on the podcast as well soon what would your okay. advice be to someone obviously you've flown with her you know her what sort of a, a commander do you think she'll be and do you think she needs any 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 advice oh she she, she learned from the best so she doesn't need any more <laughs> advice <laughs> she definitely doesn't need any advice she'll, she'll she's going to do just great on her own but you have to ask her this question when she's on the podcast, ask her what it was like flying with, with two such strong and handsome men. Um, <laughs> I will. In, 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 you, ha- you absolutely have to ask her that in, in star city, before we launched, we had the press conference and one of the Russian media outlets asked her that question and she was so <laughs> flustered. And anyway, so it's been, we've had seven years of fun with that. Oh, so, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I always <laughs> plant the seed. If I know Samantha's speaking or something, I always plant that question whenever I can. Brilliant. <laughs> now you've also, I mean, it, it's extraordinary what, what you've done. And I always find the term uh, which NASA tends to use retired astronaut. I, it really bothers me because you're still an astronaut. You might not be an astronaut right now, but you're, you're still an astronaut, but you've also flown around the earth pole to pole in an aircraft. I just wonder about, those two different perspectives, your space perspective and that perspective from an aircraft, what what those sort of differences, what what difference you get in space from what we would all experience perhaps at looking out of the, the, the window of a plane? So I, I love that question because, um, as, as you mentioned, the, the mission that we did was called One More Orbit. We flew from the Kennedy Space Center on the anniversary of Apollo 11 and uh, went over the North and South Pole and set a world speed record. And that was an amazing experience. And I actually had a chance to direct a film about that, the documentary called One More Orbit. 
and it was so much fun. I I love doing that movie. It's a it was a really cool movie. It's a fun thing. But I compared what it's like to orbit in space with what it's like to orbit in an airplane, and it was so similar. I it really sh- just shocked me how similar it was because we had this mission. We had like a launch time. There was all kinds of preparation. We had to get the airplane ready with all these um, cameras that we used for the film. Once we were up, we had a schedule. We were calling back to Mission Control in Qatar. It was a Qatar Airways airplane. They they lent us the airplane. So we had like a flight director, the crew on board. Everybody had their own position. It was so similar to the to looking out. And you could just sit there and look out a window. You couldn't go outside, but you could look out the window, which is very similar. And I saw so much of the Earth. The big difference was I remember thinking like, okay, there's an, there's some icebergs over the North Pole and they're going to fly by. But then they didn't fly by. Like they were just barely moving because we were going at 500 miles an hour and not 17,000 miles an hour. So there was a lots of similarities. And that was a lot of fun to make a movie about those similarities. One more orbit. It's quite interesting the way, you know, sort of, sort of 40, 50 years ago, a lot of the first astronauts often struggled to continue their careers after they had, um, for instance, you know, gone to the moon or, or, or what have you. You sound like you've really embraced post-astronaut career with directing, with writing. You're, you're presenting a podcast down to earth. Is it fair to say that you just see this as a, a, a it sounds like you're in a, a playground enjoying doing media stuff, basically? It's been really fun. I, You know, when I got back from my long duration mission, I wanted to take a year and and do my duty actually, because there was a lot of studies that I had to do and there's a lot of things that I had learned. And, you know, I just wanted to share what I had learned and I didn't want to leave right away. But as I, as I got to thinking about it, I had a talk with my boss and they said, well, you know, you can get back in line and you'll probably fly about five years from now, which is actually what it was. The people that I was flying with are just now like Samantha hasn't flown yet. Right. It's been over five years. But I realized that if I did that, I would be doing the same thing over again. Like we're not going to the moon anytime soon. And so I, and I'd done everything there was to do. I was a shuttle pilot. I did spacewalks. I was a station commander. I filmed an IMAX movie. I, that was what I really wanted to do. And so for me, it was like, all right, it's time to go. There was other things I wanted to do in life, like writing and directing. And I also like business and I'm, we're trying to, we have a startup, a uh, renewable energy company we're trying to do. And so it was just time. It was the right time for me to to go. And I I am so busy right now, and I have so many interesting things going on that I really don't look back. And I had spent over thirty years in the government, in the Air Force, and at NASA, and I loved it. I mean, flying F sixteen was awesome, and being an astronaut was awesome. But it's the government, you know. And <laughs> so I was ready to be in the private industry and have some freedom. And anyway, so for me, it was it was a good thing. But I. I do feel sorry. There's some guys who just all they want to do is fly in space and they want to do it again. And, you know, there's a time when that's going to end. It's it's good to have things to do in the future and not constantly be trying to do the same thing over again, I think. Yeah, no, you're right. I always feel the same when you meet people who's, who've perhaps been married a long time and say the wedding day was the happiest day of my life. I always, I always think, Oh my, that's awful. Because (laughs) if, you know, it feels like it's life really has more to offer. You know, it should be getting better and doing, doing more things. But one potential way, obviously, is private space flight now. Is that something you'd ever, ever consider? 
I would, I would certainly consider it. Um, especially if I had an opportunity to film something, I would, I would love to, to do that. You know, I think with all of my filming experience, I'd, I'd have something to offer there. Yeah. And that would be quite interesting as well because of, uh, it technically, because you've got windows and light coming in from outside in and then sudden switches. Uh, I think that, yeah, that would be quite a challenge. And you've obviously got passengers that you can't necessarily direct if they're paying passengers. (laughs) They're going to be in a very confused state experiencing weight. The first few minutes of weight. I mean, it it takes a couple weeks before you get really good at weightlessness. So yeah. You know, four minutes is not going to be enough time. That's for sure. I think that's what the uh, they they bank on. <laughs> yeah, it it would be it would be pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't be opposed. It would be a fun flight. That you know, it's those flights are not without risk. And in in the book, in that How to Astronaut book, I actually wrote a chapter about space tourism. It's basically things you need to know before you go into space. And I talk about like take the medicine <laughs> don't 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 mess with getting airsick but and don't don't worry about taking pictures cuz they're going to have cameras set up all that's going to happen just like look out the window and let that image get take brain pictures you know yeah but the reality is before you do that you have to understand that you're launching on a rocket and there is some risk now we've got to ask you about one of your podcast episodes, haven't we? Yeah, so I really enjoyed your. Uh, I mean, I've, you know, as soon as we knew we were going to interview you, we start. I've been dipping into your podcast. I'm now going to subscribe to your podcast. So it's down to earth with uh, Terry Vert. You, you interviewed a, a wide range of people, but got to ask you about UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> so you interviewed um, Pentagon specialists on UFOs. What What was your conclusion? I mean, it was your conclusion that these are just unidentified things or was your conclusion that i don't know there might be aliens i've never seen them myself so i can say that but i have a open mind and and when you start having people who are fighter pilots and naval officers and you know these are the kind of people when they wake up in the morning their goal for the day is to not see a ufo right mm-hmm. <laughs> they they don't want to see a ufo they don't want to have to go hey boss i saw a ufo they're just not that kind of person. In fact, there's been a lot more sightings that people haven't come forward with because they don't want to be the UFO guy. And so there's some credibility there that is not, they're not, this is not like the UFO hunters organization that's seeing these things. And beyond the personal observations, we have data. There's radar tracking data. There's infrared camera tracking data. There's EO camera tracking data. And so it's not just somebody saw something. It's like, okay, there's these things there. Some of them are clearly balloons and some of them are like drones, but some of them are going really, really, really fast, much faster than normal human things can go. And they're going to altitudes that we can't go and they're going underwater. And some of them are probably explainable as balloons and drones. And some of them really don't seem to be. And and we actually have data that show that. And so I don't know what it is. I don't know. It, you kind of hope it's a UFO or you hope it is alien because if the Russians have that technology or the Chinese have it, that that's bad. <laughs> it was good. It was brave of you to do that podcast, I think, because as you say, for, for anyone, it, 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 it risks ridicule. But right. actually, as, as you say, you know, there are now credible reports or, well, there always have been plenty of credible right. reports coming out that say, Actually, we 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 
we don't always know what this. There is no explanation for certain things. And even um, I reread actually some of the descriptions of the very first UFOs, uh, as you're probably aware of how the word, they got the, the, the word flying saucers. It wasn't actually, it was journalists who, who coined that phrase because the, the witness said, described it as a sort of elongated spaceship, but said it moved like a stone or a saucer skimming across a lake. And I thought that was a great description because a lot of the modern descriptions as well include that sort of jerky going from one place to another, like a right. stone bouncing off the surface of water. It was interesting. Um, I had Chris Mellon, former Undersecretary of Defense, and then Lou Elizondo on. And Lou actually, well, actually, they both were talking about the similarities between sightings a long time ago and, and, and the things that we've seen now, I didn't know that. I'm not, like I said, I'm not a UFO expert, but, um, there has, there have been a lot of similarities in different places around the world. There was a U.S. surface air missile battery in Guam. I think it was that had these sightings and there was a radar site in Belgium that had them and they're seeing kind of the same vehicles, which is interesting. I didn't realize that Chris Mellon had an interesting take on it. Remember in the Empire Strikes Back, the Star Wars movie, the Darth Vader had sent out these little drones. They were going on all the planets trying to find Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. The scary, the scary drones with the little um, robotic arms coming off. The yes, screen. exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly it. what you mean. Yep, yep. I can see that. My so that was Chris <laughs> Mellon's thought: is that if there was some civilization that you know, if they could get something that flew at ten percent of the speed of light it would take them about a million years or maybe a few million years. They could scour the galaxy with these, with drones that would go look and see what's out there. And so anyway, I, I'm not saying that that's what it was, but it was an interesting, I never thought of that theory that, that Chris had as a possibility. So it's not, in other words, it, it's not like there's not living things in these vehicles, but they're just some type of drone that's out there scouting. It is so interesting. Sue is very much more of the I want to believe than um, I am. Yeah, I'm a sort of fox molder, <laughs> I think. You know, I've got the science background, the uh, space science interest, the journalism. But yeah, I definitely have a poster with a flying saucer with I want to believe on it. I really, I can't help it. Also, I think it's because I like sci-fi. And as you say, there are so, you know, even when I take that hat off, the journalist in me also says, that correlates with that correlates with that that okay you discount that one because it was a, a weather phenomenon or it was a sprite or you know there are certain as or it was as in the case with a lot of american sightings they were you know experimental craft and i remember being at the white sands uh, missile base they've got a fantastic museum there with all different spacecraft outside and i was astonished when i saw one that was shaped like a flying saucer and they flew it from sort of Roswell to White Sands and I thought well no wonder there are so many <laughs> you know often I think nine times out of ten there is a logical explanation but yes I'm, I'm full of that people saw that right yeah but here's the thing though think about it if you were an alien and you flew across the galaxy why would you go to Roswell, New Mexico? Not, not that there's anything wrong with Roswell. It's a, yes. it's a wonderful town. I've been there. I used to fly there all the time. They have a approach to their airport that's called the Widowmaker because it's this really difficult to fly thing. So Air Force stu- pilot students have to do this. 
But seriously, I would go to the Bahamas or I'd go to like <laughs> Southern Italy or Southern France or something. And anyway. Let's get, let me just bring this back to, <laughs> to, to fact. Um, so, um, you know, you took these amazing pictures. You, you shot the IMAX film. You've, you've flown around the earth as well as flown around the earth uh, from space. I, I wonder if you're looking forward to the, the next lot of pictures taken by astronauts, which will be pictures of earth from the moon again or pictures of the, the moon taken by astronauts in the highest possible yeah. Resolu- re- resolution it's sort of different when someone's there taking that picture isn't it yeah it is i mean we have drone pictures which is amazing actually i made a short film last year called cosmic perspective and i'm hoping to get it turned into a tv series but it was based on just space photography from astronauts from drones from you know hubble uh, there's so many different kinds of photographs but when there's a person there it there, it just adds something like i tell people there a lot of people say well why are we bothering sending humans into space we can just send drones and i'm like well why do you go to hawaii on your honeymoon you can go on the internet and just see really cool pictures of palm trees and beaches that's nice <laughs> but it's better to go there in person there is something different when there's an astronaut doing it for sure ISS Commander Terry Verts. His podcast is called Down to Earth with Terry Verts and uh, absolute masterclass, Sarah, in uh, product placement. <laughs> I, I thought the way he subtly mentioned films, books, uh, it was just absolutely, and his podcast, absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. And he's great. But he was lovely, absolutely charming and yeah, yeah and, and would ask, answer any questions, yeah. I thought as well. Yeah, he, he sounded, he didn't sound guarded, did he? He sounded thoughtful, and uh, and relaxed. I think more the longer the interview went on, the more sort of relaxed uh, he sounded. But uh, yeah, that was a really interesting conversation. I did I did enjoy that. A uh, very few astronauts will talk about UFOs, which I also thought was yes. was interesting because it you know it, it's a it's well, a like bit of a said, red flag when you talk about guy, exactly yeah. <laughs> you don't want to become that astronaut. It, it does. I mean, it, you know, it talked about people taking pictures of the earth having a person there it's the same with the moon isn't it it does make a difference doesn't it having a a person there and having a personal experience yeah i absolutely think it does i think um just to take that in for yourself and and to take those images and just if you look at space exploration as a whole you've got robotic missions and yes they can be very inspiring particularly things like the voyager spacecraft or new horizon which of course visited and um, pluto and then the, the kuiper belt objects um, rosetta was a objects. massive success as yeah well. rosetta yeah. was huge rosetta yeah. was incredible but I, I don't think anything's really going to replace the human space travel because i think what rosetta did very well with their marketing campaign is that they made this amazing cartoon of rosetta and Philae, yeah. and and it humanized it it made something so unrelatable relatable which was these two rocket you know these two robotic spacecraft um millions and millions of miles away and it suddenly made it relatable because you had these characters but mostly robotic spacecraft isn't as relatable because we almost can't compute the vastness of space and these complex other worlds whereas you know when you have humans there when you've got human space travel you can relate to it even if these humans are people with multiple phds and degrees and military test pilots and and super achievers you can still relate to that human experience in a way that you can't relate to a robotic space mission i think we ought to finish by asking where you 
stand on UFOs, Sarah? Well, I may have done a few television shows on this. Yes. <laughs> so um, I, um, I, I think anything which opens up a conversation about STEM and about science is something that is important and interesting. I, you know, for pretty much every star we can see when we look up at the night sky, we know there is at least one planet orbiting around it. I, I think for one in five stars, we know has an Earth-like planet. We we know the potential is there for the universe to be teeming with life. We know within our own solar system, there may be microbial life or evidence of microbial life in the past on Mars. Um, we don't know whether it's independent of life on Earth. We know Enceladus and Europa, for example, moons of Jupiter and Saturn, you know, have all the conditions potentially to have life. There are other places in our solar system, even Venus, which might, we, you know, there has been some debate around this, have um, the conditions for life in, in its clouds. Um, and if we, we know that there's two genesises within our one average solar system, we know there's all these solar systems out there in the universe, the, the chance of there being intelligent life out there increases. But in terms of life visiting us, we don't have that evidence yet. I, I mean, there's some people within the, the scientific community, uh, such as Arby Loeb, the, the Harvard astronomer, who believes um, that there is the potential that that object, that cigar-shaped object which came by Earth, could have potentially been an alien spacecraft. He's not saying it was. He said there's the potential that it could have been. Um, there are unusual sightings, particularly for military bases of UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, which certainly the US government has been investigating. As far as we know, we don't yet have the evidence that something has visited us. Uh, and as far as we know, we we don't know whether there's life out there or not. All right. I, I'm, I'm getting fed up of hearing the evidence now, Sarah. I want now, um, as, as, I, as I as as I was, the science journalist yes, speaks. The science journalist speaks. As I was uh, mentioning to Terry about my "I want to believe" poster that I did have actually when I was a science correspondent at the BBC on the wall. Do you want to believe, Sarah? I think, you know, it's funny, I've got, I, I want to believe a little patch that's what I worked on on my show Contact, which is obviously about um, whether aliens have made contact, um, which I did for Discovery Channel. Uh, and one of the crew gave me this patch saying I want to believe because obviously I was the more sceptical one um, with this. And I think we all want to believe. We want to, you know, in some way, you know, space is as much about philosophy and search for meaning as it is about science. And I think we want to believe there's something more out there. We want to believe that there's some sort of meaning to all of this. So, I think there's an element of that, but there's a, there's things we can't explain yet. I'll take that as a, a hesitant yes. <laughs> <laughs> a diplomatic answer. One has to be careful. <laughs> um, Sarah Credders, thank you very much for joining us. And um, I believe the paperback version of your latest book is coming out this month as well. Yes, um, I'm so excited to look up our story with the stars. Um, it's with Harper Collins, 8Q, um, forward by um, the late Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins, which I was incredibly grateful about and the the paper edition is out in september so um yes please read it if you want to find out the history of why we went to space how it's changed our world and where we're heading in our space future brilliant sarah thank you very much and that's the space boffins podcast our producer has been jack monaghan we'll be back next month with astronaut samantha christopheretti <laughs> and guess what we're going to ask her about do get in touch say how wonderful we are on your podcast platform of choice and thanks for listening Bonjour, c'est Julie Marceline de Newt Podcast. Cette semaine, j'ai été sélectionnée par Acast Recommande. Vous aimez les faits divers et vous avez toujours voulu savoir ce qui se cache côté coulisses Dans l'envers du fait divers, je recueille les confidences d'un ex-journaliste qui a couvert les plus grands événements et affaires judiciaires. Il nous révèle les dessous de ses enquêtes et les secrets de cet univers hors normes. 
Au fil des épisodes, il se met à nu pour nous confier les répercussions de ce métier sur sa vie. À retrouver sur votre appli d'écoute en tapant Nude Podcast, Nude N-U-D-E, ou l'envers du fait divers, je vous attends.